0: Welcome to the War on Wildlife podcast, presented by Charlie Moores and Ruth PC. Episode 3, The War on Badgers, Bovine TB, Vaccination, Thoughts on Campaigning, and it's the only way to protect the cows, you say? Are we ready? We're ready, let's go for it.
1: Awesome. Welcome to the third episode in our series of podcasts looking at the war on wildlife. My name is Ruth PC, and I'm a wildlife filmmaker, a conservationist and a birdwatcher.
0: Hello, I am Charlie Morts and I'm a podcaster, I'm a birdwatcher, I'm a campaigner and I work for Lush.
1: This series is inspired, at least in part, by Chris Packham's People's Manifesto for Wildlife, which used the hashtag War on Wildlife.
0: Which was a great hashtag.
1: It is a great hashtag, Charlie.
0: It is a great hashtag. Yeah, We have resurrected the War on Wildlife hashtag. And uh, are using that on social media. We just figured it was a good thing to pick up and run
1: with. Definitely. And I hope you agree as well. Well, in our first episode, we looked at driven grouse shooting, the pheasant shooting industry, hen harriers, other birds of prey, wild justice, and a whole load of other things relating to this term war on wildlife.
0: So last month, we looked at fox hunting, value based language. That's that uh, pests, vermin, weeds sort of language. Still makes me angry. yeah, and we launched the iExtremist concept, which I thought was quite a good idea, but we've not had a great deal of feedback. In fact, we've had no feedback on that at all. So but I'm it, a bit disappointed. It, oh,
1: don't be too disappointed. It led me to go and actually watch the iSpartacus movie, so now I totally understand the concept. You went and
0: watched it on the back of that?
1: I went and watched it on the back of that. Of course I did. It's great.
0: <laughs> it is great, isn't it? Yes. It's a, actually a good film, apart from anything else, but well worth seeing. Anyway... Uh, We also mentioned, um, I think we mentioned it at least twice, that the new War on Wildlife website was still under construction,
1: but... Charlie's got some news. (laughs) It's been built. Woohoo! I built it. Yay! Um, Based
0: on a WordPress theme. Um, There's not a huge amount on it yet, but what I'm doing is transferring all the links to all of the podcasts that um, I've been making while I've been at Lush, uh, well over 100 on animal welfare and connected issues uh, we've got some of your videos up Ruth which are Yay. great I love um, your videos
1: we'll be adding some more as well and if you guys want to check it out you can see the website for yourself at waronwildlife.co.uk
0: yeah indeed so we have a home for these podcasts which are also on iTunes uh, and everything else um, so what are we looking at this episode episode three of the war on wildlife podcast
1: well topically we're going to be looking at the badger call.
0: Yeah, we are indeed looking at the NFU or National Farmers Union-led and government-sanctioned massacre of a legally protected species. One of the few large or large-ish predators left in our once green and now nature-depleted land.
1: And this is a massacre which, in our opinion, and this is what the evidence says anyway, is being sanctioned by the government on behalf of the dairy industry. And we'll explain why a bit later. Yeah.
0: And that's not such an outrageous claim to make because that same sanctioned slaughter does go on in other parts of the world. And the common element that links them all together, it's wildlife getting in the way in quotes of industry, particularly cattle and sheep.
1: Yes. And of course, in other countries, we're looking at things like dingoes and thylacines, which are now extinct, Mm. and that's in Australia, of course.
0: Yeah, we're looking at coyotes and wolves in North America.
1: In fact, wolves all across Europe, actually. Yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, let's not forget, here in the UK, we had the uh, the raven. I don't like the word coal. It's, it's, it's a euphemism. It's too soft. I mean, this is killing. This is killing. So we had the raven killing here in the UK, killed on um, moorland, supposedly to protect sheep and curlews, but obviously it was to protect red grouse.
1: Yeah, and also we've had cormorants being killed to protect the angling industry. A
0: surprising number of cormorants are, are licensed to be killed. As
1: a, as a child, I remember learning about this. And sorry, not as a child. As a child, I would have been surprised to know about this. And once I learned yeah. about it as a young adult, I was absolutely horrified because yeah. I had absolutely no idea.
0: I remember learning the phrase obligate piscopore, which is one of my favourite phrases.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that.
0: The cormorant is an obligate piscivore. That's what it does. It eats fish. So, of course, if you fill up these lakes with fish, you're going to get cormorants. I've always thought the licensing to kill cormorants because we've provided them with a meal is a ludicrous thing.
1: Anyway, let's yeah. get back on track. Let's
0: get back on track because we're just going to get cross and we don't know where we're going to go <laughs> if we get too cross. And we only have an hour.
1: And I'm already pretty cross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, well,
0: there's a lot to be cross about at the moment from this remnant of a government extending this bloody badge call, which we'll look at we will look at um, the
1: fox hunting psychopaths carrying on another season of breaking the law with seeming impunity
0: how can you have a fox hunting season when fox hunting is illegal and we've got the game bird shooting season is, is about to get going
1: well it's well underway isn't it it's been going for, for a month or so now if you count the red grouse so yeah
0: yeah october yeah. the first for pheasants yeah. and we're recording this towards the end of september so,
1: so it's then. all happening
0: yeah, I, I used to love autumn. I really used to love autumn. It used to be one of my favourite times of the year. You felt like the the earth had done this amazing summer and now it was taking a breath and exhaling and then we were relaxing a little bit. I, I just think we've turned this, as Keith said, the seasons of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun as... It's become a signal that open warfare on wildlife is here. It's ruining the countryside for so many of us.
1: Okay, now I really, really, really am cross. Really yeah. cross. Let's look at what else we're going to be looking at in this episode. Yes,
0: <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> uh, we're going to be looking at campaigning.
1: What works, what doesn't work.
0: Yeah, and we're recording this a few days after the global climate strikes took place, so we'll be reflecting on that.
1: Exactly. And what actually works and what might not be working anymore?
0: We've both been involved in campaigns that seem to be going nowhere. And that's that's triggered, I think, by thinking about the badger because it is still going on. and An awful lot of campaigning is taking place. But um, this might be a good time to drop in a War on Wildlife short as um, we finally decided <laughs> these little... I think we started calling them mini-interviews to begin with. Yeah, but, but they are short. War on Wildlife short. I like, like that. That sums it up, doesn't it? They're okay. short. <laughs> short little interviews. They're, they're normally about a minute, a minute and a half, two minutes. And it's where we ask, is there a war on wildlife and what piece of advice would you give to help tackle it? And this time up, it's Julian um, Branscombe.
1: Yeah, he's a former chief executive of Gwent Wildlife Trust. Yeah, and
0: just to set this in context, Julian actually left the Trust in 2009 and moved up to Orkney, where he does some great tweets about the birds scene. Um, but he came back south to an event at the Trust Magle Marsh Reserve on the Gwent Levels, to celebrate the Welsh Government announcing that a motorway extension, which was actually, as I learned at the time, a bypass of an existing bypass. course. Oh, gosh. Um, that extension would have cut right through one end of the reserve. And the, the Welsh Government decided not to green light it. And that was after a very, very long campaign. So this is what Julian is talking about in this next short.
2: It certainly is a war. I'm standing here with a glass of champagne in my hand because for once we've actually won a campaign one that's lasted 28 years and the plan for a new motorway across the Gwent Levels wetlands in South Wales is defeated and I think that this is just the right moment to give my one piece of advice just don't give up that campaign has been absolutely hopeless so many times and you've just got to keep going whatever it takes and two things can happen you might win, surprisingly or you might lose but even if you lose If you've actually made it hell for people to plan the destruction of Wild Habitat, if you've made it an outrage when it actually goes forwards, then by losing that battle, you help them win the overall war because we've got to win this war in the end. So I would say keep going, be relentless, believe in yourself. It doesn't matter whether you think you're going to win or not, just be unflinching and make sure they, the forces of darkness, don't know that you, you actually think it's hopeless. And like us, you may actually win.
1: Don't give up. Be relentless. Be unflinching. I like that.
0: I do. I do like that. I don't always feel capable of it, but I do like it. Uh, and just he did indeed have a glass of champagne in his hand. It was. A, it was a really. It was <laughs> a really good event.
1: Oh, that extra confidence always gives. <laughs> Let's get back on track with the badger call. Let's okay? get
0: back on the badger call. Um, presumably everyone knows what the badger is, but just in case they don't, Ruth.
1: Well, it's that rather wonderful, fairly large, black and white, mostly nocturnal mammal that resides right here in the UK. It's um, very famous in cultural references and symbols right across the UK as well.
0: Mascot of Hufflepuff.
1: Yes, there's all sorts of cultural references, and like you say, Hufflepuff being one of them, that's my favourite house in Harry Potter.
0: Um, It's the mascot of the Wildlife Trusts, and that one's apparently called Irby.
1: And Bertie the Badger is a mascot of St John's Ambulance.
0: Uh, Billy Badger, mascot of Fulham Football Club
1: my favourite is Bill Badger from The Rupert at the Bear Stories. The
0: Rupert at the Bear Stories. Younger listeners may need to um, look those up. They were well worth it. They were great, weren't they?
1: Well worth it. And Bill Badger was my favourite character. Anyway, should we get back to the more serious? Yeah, stuff?
0: back to the more serious stuff. It's a yeah.
1: very complex issue, this it, one.
0: Very, very complex. And what we're going to try and do is try and pull a lot of threads together and explain how the Badger has ended up being persecuted for spreading a disease that is a disease of cattle. We're going to try and lay the facts out as, as we see them. Uh, we've already stated our position, uh, but in case that wasn't clear, would you like to quote Dominic Dyer, Chief Executive of the Badger Trust? He wrote this in 2018.
1: Yes, I certainly will. So he said that the cull is the largest destruction of a protected species in living memory. By the end of 2018, that's just last year, the government will have spent over £50 million of public funds, killing over 67,000 badgers since 2013, which could push the species to the verge of local extinction in areas of England where it has lived since the Ice Age. The badger cull is a cruel, costly and ineffective policy, and its continuation is a national disgrace.
0: Yeah, I think that's really powerful. The badger cull is a cruel, costly, and ineffective policy. We're going to explain all three of those. And its continuation is a national disgrace.
1: We absolutely are going to explain that. And we should just, I really, really want to emphasise this point right now. When we say ineffective, we don't mean it's ineffective at killing badgers. It's very
0: effective at that.
1: It's ineffective in terms of solving the crisis, which Mm. is supposed to be there in place to do. So we will pick up on that later. But I just wanted to say that right now. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I'm I'm not sure how much background information we'd need to give to this. I'm not sure we can do it properly anyway in in a podcast of this sort of length. Um, because so much of this cull is hotly debated. It's argued about um, the facts, the statistics, the figures are uh, disputed. I mean, if you go on social media, the separation between those who are pro-cull and those who are anti-cull, it's, it reminds me of something else that's going on in the country at the moment. The nuts and bolts of this is the badger is being blamed for the spread of a cattle disease, bovine tuberculosis, or BTB. The badger does carry the bacterium, but the clue is in the name, bovine TB.
1: Okay, but before we go into bovine TB, let's look at tuberculosis or TB in humans to give this podcast some background context. Is that all right?
0: Yeah, I think I think we should because um, a lot of people will be unfamiliar with tuberculosis. Fortunately, here in the UK at least, it's, it's not a very common disease, but it certainly used to be. And... Um, It's caused by a bacterium from the Mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. It's a chronic, highly infectious disease, mainly of the respiratory system, and the disease is spread through inhaling tiny droplets from the coughs or sneezes of an infected person.
1: Yeah, it's a very serious disease, and it used to be widely known as consumption. Even in the ver- relatively recent past, it spread like wildfire through the crowded, unsanitary conditions that many of the poor used to live in. Although we say many of the poor, anyone could and did catch it, including some rather famous people. Yeah, it's
0: really surprising when I was looking at this. Um, 1984 author George Orwell quoted during World War One, and died. Franz Kafka, who wrote um, Metamorphosis, amongst other things. The composers Chopin and Stravinsky. Even Vivian Lee, star of Gone With The Wind, died of it. Eleanor Roosevelt, wife of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. I mean, there's a hell of a list of very well-known people who have died of tuberculosis.
1: Crikey. And in fact, it's estimated right now that almost a quarter of the world's population carries the TB bacteria.
0: Yeah. In 2017, there were around 1.3 million TB-related deaths worldwide. And it's still a leading cause of death among people living with HIV. This is this is a serious, serious disease.
1: This doesn't really explain why we're killing badgers.
0: No, because that's human TB. So there are numerous strains of TB. And people used to get another form of TB from drinking milk infected with the Mycobacterium bovis bacterium. Closely related to Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It's that same bacterium that causes bovine TB.
1: So Charlie, is bovine TB a problem for humans?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked that. Humans can become infected with bovine TB. That's a fact. But it is nowhere near as prevalent as it used to be because of pasteurisation, which we've all heard of. And it's just, simply speaking, it's quick, fairly low temperature heating of milk. Which kills the bacteria.
1: We should say it's a very effective process. In fact, according to the NHS website itself, transmission to humans is reported to be uncommon in the developed world. The UK's Health Protection Agency suggested that in the 17 years from 1994 to 2011, there were just 570 reported human cases of a bovine TB infections so that's about 33 a year and most of these were in people aged 45 or over and of course they could have been infected before milk pasteurization and meat inspection became commonplace in the UK.
0: Yeah because you can carry these bacterium bacteria sorry that's the plural of course <laughs> you can carry those bacteria for a long time in the system before they actually start to to impact you.
1: Yes, and we're going to be focusing this podcast specifically on the developed world because that's where badgers are being killed and dairy products from our own dairy industry most commonly are being sold.
0: Yeah, so that's the importance of that earlier statistic, isn't it, about it being uncommon in the developed world? Because you can still get it. It's still in the milk where they don't have pasteurization. But could we, you and I, Ruth, and the people listening to this, could we catch bovine TB from milk and meat? And the answer is... No, if we only drink pasteurised milk and we cook our meat.
1: Okay, so we're talking about badgers being killed here and we've explained that basically now it's near on impossible for us in the developed world to catch bovine TB from eating meat or drinking milk if we buy it from, say, our supermarket. We'll come back to that another time. However, However, we're killing badgers. Does this mean that it's possible to catch it from a badger?
0: That's a great question, isn't it? Could you catch it from a live badger? I mean, how on earth? You would have to get extraordinarily close to a live badger. I don't even want to go down that particular route where you would be getting that close to a live badger under normal circumstances. Most people have not even seen a live badger. Most people have seen one dead on the side. This is true.
1: And I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to get maybe not quite that close, but close enough to take good photos of badgers. Uh, without flashes I might add and um, in order to get just even you know anywhere near them it takes a lot of a lot of work.
0: And we should say anyway not all badgers carry bovine TB so the chances of you getting it from a live badger is nigh on impossible for normal people who are not handling badgers in in any way shape or form.
1: But what happens if you're just going for a walk in badger country and you've got a dog what about that?
0: Well, okay, that's an interesting thing. And we did some research on this, didn't we? Um, Your pet dog could catch bovine TB the same way that we could get bovine TB. And that's by drinking unpasteurized milk or, and this is important, we're going to come back to this, by eating TB infected meat. But if you don't feed your dog unpasteurized milk and you don't feed them raw infected meat, they are not going to get bovine TB.
1: Not going to get bovine TB. No.
0: And in fact, this is the the official advice from the government. I'm quoting off their website. TB can be spread from animals to humans, but the risk of you or your family becoming infected from your pet is considered to be very low. And I'm sure when the government says very low, they mean nigh on impossible, but they're not going to say that because someone will always pop up out of the woodwork and say, oh, I got it. I'm going to sue you. So I think very low we can take to mean we're not going to catch it from a dog.
1: Yeah. Unless they're talking about big political decisions that might affect the entire country, they do tend to err on the side of caution.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you're not going to get bovine TB from drinking milk and eating meat. You're not going to get it from a live badger. You're not going to get it from your pets. The Food Standards Agency says there's no known case of anyone here in the UK contracting bovine TB from eating meat, which leaves us with an obvious question.
1: Yes. Why are badgers being killed in huge numbers?
0: In a nutshell, the problem is that infected meat cannot be sold into the EU. They simply will not take it.
1: Just to be clear, this is not going to be a debate about whether the EU and its rules, etc, etc, is wrong or not. Although, personally, I think the EU being cautious to protect millions of consumers might not necessarily be a bad thing. No, I
0: think it's a pretty good thing. I think it's a pretty good thing. So, a major market is close to dairy farmers with infected herds. I get it. It's hardly surprising they want to do something. But is killing badgers the right thing to do?
1: No. Unequivocally, no. Because... As experts repeatedly point out, it's ineffective. Research shows it doesn't halt the spread of the disease.
0: Yeah, we need to be really clear here. Cattle introduce bovine TB to badgers. And researchers can prove this by the appearance of strains of the bacterium appearing in an area for the first time after cattle movements from areas infected with that particular strain. And we'll go back to that in in a minute because this thing about cattle movements is really important. But first of all, despite what you might imagine from all the reporting, badgers and cattle tend to avoid each other. Badgers and cattle live side by side in areas where there is no infection and the disease doesn't just suddenly materialize. And it's not just badgers that can carry bovine TB anyway.
1: No, this doesn't get mentioned nearly enough, but everything from mice, shrews, voles, even deer, stoats and foxes have been found to carry bovine TB.
0: Yeah, and yet there's no call from the National Farmers Union, which is essentially the farming industry, or as Ethel Consumer put it in 2016, the National Farmers Union is not really national, not really comprised of farmers and not really a union. It's easy to understand if we think of it, perhaps, as the English agribusiness lobby group. Um, There's no call to cull other animals. In fact, all other animals.
1: Because if you don't just scapegoat the badger, as the NFU does, and if you really think killing wildlife will help rid the countryside of bovine TB, then you basically have to kill everything. Hopefully, no one in their right mind is going to suggest that.
0: Well, there have been a few countryside lobbyists, but um, I don't think they're seriously worth giving any publicity here. So let's move on.
1: So this might make you wonder why the badger gets scapegoated. And that's,
0: that's the question, isn't it? It's a good question. Why is the badger getting scapegoated? And I've done numerous interviews with campaigners and experts about the badger cull. They're all on Lush Play. You can find them all there. But basically, what I have learned is the farmers... Some farmers, the shooting industry and developers on the whole do not like badgers. These are some of the reasons why the badger is being scapegoated in the bovine TB problem
1: many farmers absolutely refuse to accept that lax biosecurity, so things like not fixing dilapidated barns, ensuring wild animals can't access food stores, covering the land with infected slurry, essentially animal waste like manure and bedding sprayed on fields as cheap fertiliser. They refuse to accept that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with
0: that they need to deal with really essentially isn't it and they refuse to accept that btb is being spread by poorly monitored cattle movements introducing bovine tb by moving cattle from high risk areas into areas where it's not been recorded before because a very fallible bovine tb skin test is being used to essentially clear cattle selling all over the country in fact, the Godfrey Review, or more properly, a review of the government's 25-year bovine TB strategy led by Sir Charles Godfrey, specifically said that preventing the disease spreading between cattle on farms and in livestock trading was a more important way to control infection than shooting
1: That is massively important. You probably all remember a terrible disease called foot and mouth that ripped through the countryside almost 20 years ago in 2001. If you're old enough, I certainly am, you may remember the piles of carcasses being burnt and footpaths and other rights of way being closed right across the countryside. That outbreak itself led to the slaughter of 6 million cows and sheep and it was absolutely devastating to farmers And, of course, the taxpayer, because it cost a huge amount of money to us.
0: Yeah, and that outbreak began in pigs fed animal waste on a single farm in Northumberland. And such was the way that animals were transported around the country. Within weeks, it was popping up everywhere. Now, after that disease was controlled, farmers wanted to restock their
1: herds. Which you can understand. They've just lost their whole livelihood They want to bring back their animals. But instead of maybe thinking, hmm, animal movement caused this outbreak, let's make 100% sure this can't happen again, our friends at the NFU insisted that cattle movement started up immediately so the business of farming could get underway again. The testing for bovine TB was suspended. And that's how bovine TB spread from hotspots in the southwest out across the country
0: nothing to do with badgers all to do with infective cattle movements and proof a couple of years ago the incidence of bovine tb in cumbria suddenly shot up why
1: well cumbrian cattle farmers buy stock imported from other areas of england even from some high risk areas northern ireland and the republic of ireland and the animal and plant health agency APHA said that strain typing showed that the strain of TB infecting these Cumbrian cattle comes from Northern Ireland, a strain that had never previously been present in the rest of the UK.
0: Around that same time, bovine tuberculosis of that same strain that had never been recorded was found in some Cumbrian badgers. The first time infected badgers at all had been found in that area since the 1980s how how did the badgers get a strain of bovine tb that came from northern ireland
1: well let me tell you those badgers did not swim across the irish sea no there's only one way that that bovine tb found its way into that population of badgers and that is through the infected cattle
0: yeah and what was the nfu response
1: kill the badgers kill the badgers.
0: We've also said that the shooting industry doesn't like badgers either. And people listen to this who who haven't sort of followed this whole story will be going, what on earth has this got to do with the shooting industry? Well, let me tell you this. I've recorded podcasts in the field with activists in Somerset where I went on badger patrol with them. And I remember at the time saying this, why are we in a wood on Dartmoor where there are no cattle? And you know what there were loads of in that wood? pheasant release pens now you're going to say to me why should the shooting industry care about badgers
1: is it because they eat eggs and their sets get in the way
0: that would be it because they eat eggs and their sets get in the way the shooting industry have leapt gleefully onto the back of this bloody badger cull and they are wiping out badgers i'm going to, get to say this they are a protected species remember under cover of the cull and i have seen it myself I have spoken to other people who have seen This is happening. It's an utter disgrace. Uh, we also mentioned the construction industry.
1: Yeah. Now, badgers and their sets, so not just badgers, but sets, which is the homes that they live in, are legally protected. Yeah. And it costs an awful lot of money to relocate a set or delay a development, like a new housing estate, a road or high-speed railway, for example, I can't think of any of them coming along, as it should.
0: So if you're going to do an ecological survey and you know there are badgers on your land, first of all, get rid of the badgers. That's been a byword for a long time. And the colours is a cover for that. This this whole thing about the law is an interesting point, isn't it? We keep saying badgers are protected in law, yet they're being killed in huge numbers. Let's ask the question, why are badgers protected in law?
1: Well, they haven't always been protected in law. And back in the early 20th century, badger baiting... And digging had become a major leisure pursuit. This is based on Dom Dyer's book, by the way.
0: Yeah, Badger to Death.
1: Badger to Death, yes. Well worth reading. By the 1950s and 60s, tens of thousands of badgers were being killed and hundreds of sets were destroyed every year, And this threatened the very survival of the species in many parts of Britain. So they had to be protected, otherwise we'd have lost our our token of the countryside. We'd have lost that cultural reference. Bill Badger, he'd have been dead.
0: We were losing a hell of a lot of badgers and they, they had a very weak form of protection, but a new law came in in 1992, the Protection of Badgers Act, which gave them very high level protection. They are protected now. They're not classified as endangered yet. But in England and Wales, as I said, they're protected by the Protection of Badgers Act. In Scotland, by the Protection of Badgers Act, as amended by the Wildlife and Natural Environment Scotland Act 2011. And they're even protected at EU level by the Convention on the Conservation of European Wildlife and Natural Habitats. That does make you ask, how the hell are people getting away with killing loads of badgers for a cull?
1: Yeah, why is there a cull in place if they're so well protected? Well, unsurprisingly, there is an exception to this. You can get a licence, which is issued by our dear government, and that licence must meet criteria about how the killing is carried out, how humane it is, how quickly the badger must die, and what will be done with the body afterwards.
0: So under the licence, you're allowed to do what's called free shooting, But there are recent reports, I mean, very recent, have proved that badgers are taking far longer to die. They're in more pain and in fear than is allowed under the license. And many of the so-called expert marksmen being brought in to shoot badgers have in many cases no idea where they should be aiming or even have the skill to cleanly kill what is a low slung, very tough animal as it runs away from the gun.
1: In fact, this continued use of the controlled shooting method has been discredited by the British Veterinary Association as an inhumane practice. Like we said at the beginning... Because
0: this is complex. (laughs) It's
1: hugely complex. We cannot possibly cover everything here, but here are the key facts. Our dear government is sanctioning the killing of a protected species by licensing the killing of badgers. As a result of approving new badger coal licences in England, over 50,000 badgers are likely to be killed all the way from Cornwall to Cumbria by the end of November 2019.
0: This will take the number of badgers killed since the coal started in 2013 to over 130,000, pushing the species to the verge of local extinction in areas of England. It's doing it supposedly to protect the dairy industry. But there's no evidence the badgers are the problem here.
1: Bovine TB is a disease primarily of cattle and it's a problem of poorly monitored cattle movement and poor biosecurity.
0: And does it work anyway? No. I like the way you say no.
1: Well, that's because I feel so strongly about it. (laughs) I I like
0: it. I'm being serious. (laughs) I like it. No.
1: Bovine TB is still spreading and what began as a trial is now looking to become a permanent eradication programme oh it makes me so furious it wouldn't make me so furious well no it still would make me furious I'm just going to shut up continue sorry <laughs> no, go on. What's no it just makes me so cross because it doesn't work they're killing animals for the sake of it and they know it they know it yeah, so I... why are they doing it and they're spending our money yeah. they're spending our money doing this <laughs> it's not fair oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: in fact shouldn't be laughing. This is deadly bloody serious. In fact, the latest data on TB rates in cattle herbs attained under a Freedom of Information request show a 133% increase in the Gloucestershire coal zone between 2017 and 2018.
1: And that's despite large numbers of badgers being killed in those areas.
0: Yeah, and we've not even touched on something called perturbation, which is something every expert warned would happen. Unless you wipe out every occupant of a set, the remaining badgers will move out into new areas, potentially carrying bovine TB with them. And it's part of the reason why some lobbyists insist the complete eradication of the badger is the only answer to bovine TB. Something we strongly disagree with.
1: I completely, completely disagree with.
0: Um, there was something about dogs I, I wanted to mention.
1: Oh yeah, something about taking a dog for a walk in the countryside. Can yes, because you you're
0: you're a dog lover. You take, I am. You take yes. your dog for a walk in the countryside.
1: I do. Um, so if
0: is it a he or a she? It's a he. You see, if he poops, what do you do?
1: I pick it up in a bag a biodegradable bag, may I add, made of paper, and I put it in the bin. What
0: if you're a fox hunt out breaking the law, chasing foxes with your pack of hounds? Do you stop and pick up the poop then?
1: Well, if I was a fox hunter and I was out with a pack of hounds, no, I can't even pretend that I am. I can't even imagine. <sighs> Go on, no. what would you do?
0: I mean, you just carry on. you just carry on. you you totally ignore your dog crapping and there's as many as 60 dogs.
1: But you're in the countryside. It's a natural place. Animals crap everywhere. What's the problem?
0: If you happen to have fed your dogs infected meat, they will be pooping bovine TB in their poop. Ooh. Google a hunt called the Kimblewick. Um, can I can't read a quote in the uh, from the Times in August 2018. And that's not a paper noted for its anti-hunt stance on the whole. Almost 100 foxhounds were put down after an outbreak of bovine tuberculosis swept through, and I'm quoting, their dirty, overcrowded and dilapidated hunt kennels. A kennel worker tested positive for the disease after the outbreak of the Kimblewick Hunt's headquarters near Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, an investigation has found. Their findings will raise fears that hounds can spread TB to other animals, which farmers have called, in quotes, the greatest threat to the dairy industry. The first infected dog was found in December 2016, and a further 96 of the hunt's 164 dogs tested positive and had to be destroyed. A formal report concluded that the most likely cause of infection was feeding infected meats to the dogs. And those hounds on that hunt ranged over six counties.
1: That's awful.
0: But carry on killing badgers, eh?
1: That's awful, but there there is an alternative solution. And that's besides cleaning up the dairy industry, cleaning up the hunting industry and telling the shooting industry to obey the law.
0: Vaccination.
1: Yes, vaccination.
0: There There are issues with vaccination. The most important has been that there's been no way to separate a vaccinated cow from a diseased cow, because when you vaccinate something, it gives the animal, the person being vaccinated, a very mild dose of disease, which prompts the immune system to kick in and produce antibodies to defeat that disease. And those antibodies are the same either way. The tests cannot distinguish between an infected animal that's caught the disease or A vaccinated animal that's been given the disease on purpose to produce antibodies to protect it from a future infection.
1: And this is crucial. But there is more research being done into this area at the moment, isn't there?
0: Yeah, yeah. The works on a way to devise something called a a DIVA test, um, the Differentiate Infected and Vaccinated Animals skin test, which would allow testers to work out the difference between infected and vaccinated animals. You know, but even when this has been fully developed, it will need to go through EU and international approval. And it's estimated that it will be 10 years before vaccinating cattle is a realistic possibility.
1: I love the name Diva. And uh, I (laughs) love the idea of giving cows a Diva test. I think that's brilliant. Fantastic. Vaccination doesn't actually cure bovine TB, though.
0: No, it doesn't cure it. It prevents the disease taking root in the first place. Yeah. So, um, how okay. about vaccinating badgers? Were you yeah. going to say that? Yeah, I was exactly going to say, say that. that. How Great about news. vaccinating badgers against Bovine TV? Well, I went to the first ever badger vaccination symposium in Derby early this year. There's a podcast on Lush Player from that event, actually. And vaccination is underway, but there are issues. And this is one I hadn't contemplated at the time, but... A lot of people are saying the same thing. If you vaccinate badgers, you're essentially blaming the badger for BTV or, or acknowledging that the badger's the problem.
1: I'm literally holding my head in my hands here because, OK, we know it's not the problem. We understand that. But if farmers think that that's the problem... Why not vaccinate them? It's going to cost us less money than killing them. It's going to save thousands, probably tens of thousands of badgers' lives. Let's just get over ourselves and get on with it.
3: That's how I feel. Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I know there are a lot of
1: campaigners who will hate me for that. But if it's going to solve the problem, if it's going to make people happy, do it. It's not going to harm the badgers, right? Well, I
0: I think the situation has changed. That was something that people were saying earlier on. And, you know, at this symposium, people like um, Dom Dyer of the Badger Trust, Tim Birch at Derbyshire Wildlife Trust were saying that the point's well past where that needs to be a consideration anymore. Badgers are dying in vast numbers. They'll continue to die in vast numbers because the policy is about so much more than disease control. Controlling the disease is what we're being told, but there's so much more going on in the background. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned costs. Vaccination is quite expensive. Um, if, if volunteers do it, I've heard different figures, but between £100 and £200 pounds per badger. If you get a vet in, they're going to charge you £600 pounds for to vaccinate one badger. But that is still a tenth of what they're estimating shooting a single badger costs. Because when you work out policing costs... You work out the contractual hire of the marksman. You work out putting out the traps and uh, the baits to attract the badgers. They're looking at £6,000 per badger. Isn't that ridiculous?
1: It's a crazy astronomical figure. It's so, so, so sad when there are other ways that this disease can be halted.
0: Yeah. Um, It's also worth saying there are not yet nearly enough people who would be qualified to vaccinate badgers. And there's not enough vaccine.
1: No, I've heard this. There's definitely not enough vaccine at the moment, which is a problem.
0: It's almost chicken and egg, isn't it? Until vaccination becomes established, manufacturers aren't going to produce enough vaccine. But if they're not producing enough vaccine, they um, can't can't get established. (laughs) I know um, the, the Derbyshire Wildlife Trust really started their program in 2013. In 2016, they couldn't vaccinate any badgers. Because there was no vaccine available in the country. We really need to sort this out.
1: Yeah, because for me, the answer at the moment is certainly not to kill badgers in the meantime. No, no. And it's not going to make the problem go away. That's the, that's at the heart of it. It's yeah. not going to solve this bovine TB problem.
0: No. And we just mentioned Derbyshire there. We should just mm. say in the news recently, it was announced that Derbyshire, where over 600 badgers have been vaccinated um, in that campaign run by it's mainly by Derbyshire Wildlife Trust and the National Trust, they're not going to be included in new coal licences. So someone in the government is going, yeah, actually, vaccination works, which is great. That
1: is good news. Yeah, and I should
0: say farmers in Derbyshire have been really pro the idea of vaccination. Like you say, a lot of farmers don't want to go around slaughtering badgers, but they're being told there's no alternative.
1: Wildlife is important to most people. It's just the system has pushed people into yeah. a corner where they're stuck yeah. and the only solution that they're being told is available is to kill our wildlife.
0: So um that's about where we're at. There are numerous other issues like legal challenges underway that look at really complex suggestions. It it just it just goes on. This is a horrible badly designed pointless waste of money. Here here to wrap up. Dr. Ian McGill, who's a former government agriculture vet, a fierce critic of the coal, calls it a scientific fraud, and that DEFRA, the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, is issuing bare-faced lies. He's said that many times on the record, and um, he's still waiting to be sued. Do you want to give that Dominic Dunne quote again?
1: Yes, this is incredibly powerful. The badger coal is a cruel, costly, and ineffective policy, and its continuation is a national disgrace.
0: On top of that, it is no doubt a clear indication of a war on wildlife.
1: Just before we move off this topic and the sanctioned slaughter of badgers, let's have a little look at other things affecting these deer creatures. Badgers are the most numerous victims of road traffic accidents of all UK species. An estimated 50,000 are killed on the roads every year. Yeah, and they're
0: still the victims of wildlife crime. Of course, you, you mentioned badger baiting. The Badger Trust reported last month that they'd received over 190 reports of crimes against badgers. And, uh, you know, you and I both campaigned a lot on the subject of wildlife crime. And you know if it's 190 reports there's going to be far more of than course. that. Of course,
1: it's just the tip of an iceberg. Just,
0: I mean, wildlife crime takes place in the dark, in remote places. It's unseen, it's unreported. Yeah. I mean, we're not overrun with badges. No.
1: This yeah, no, killing we're
0: not. goes on. It's Shocking. an utter disgrace. Shocking. And we're going to say this for every podcast. If you don't believe what you're hearing here, go and check up. Always check up. Check up on us. <laughs> check up on the government. Check up on everything.
1: Yeah, Anyways. and feel free to feed back to us as well and use our Twitter feed because because we are very open to your thoughts on the subject.
0: Yeah, and then go and sign petitions <laughs> join the Badger Trust. Donate to people fighting the colour, even go out into the field with badger patrols. Um,
1: they're, they're not great fun, but no. you'll meet some incredible people and you'll be very welcome to help. And you'll see for yourself exactly what's going on out there.
0: Which leads us neatly to... Um, it was supposed to be the second half of this podcast, but I think mean, it's going to be the second, <laughs> the last fifth of a fourth this. But it, it's campaigning, campaigning. How do you protest the cult like this? How do, you, how do you protest anything these days? And what do you hope to achieve? Changes to the law, publicity, mass acceptance of an idea.
1: Can we actually achieve anything?
0: Yeah, that's what we hear so often, isn't it? I can't make a difference. No one listens. They're too powerful, etc. You wanted to throw in something called a... Th- Three and a half percent effect.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll explain that in yeah, a moment. Yeah,
0: because that's very yeah. very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Before we talk climate strike, because as we mentioned, we're recording this shortly after the climate strike. Let's run through some of the some of the options you can do if you want a campaign, if you want to be heard. Whether it's the badger coal, whether it's about fox hunting, whether it's about everything else we're talking about in these podcasts, just what can you do?
1: Yes. Now, one of the most important things you can do is vote. I'm going to say that now. Cast your vote for the people who represent the issues that you believe in when that opportunity arises. And remember, once those people are in place, even if they're not the people that you voted for, you can write letters. They work for you. All these MPs, they're your MPs. They represent what you feel, regardless of what their policies were or should or or should be according to their party line they are there to represent the people of their constituency. So write to them, tell them yeah. how you feel. It might seem really old school, but MPs have commented that their inboxes were flooded with protest letters when Theresa May suggested her government might bring back fox hunting prior to the 2017 election. And MPs themselves admit that it is an effective way to campaign. Yeah. And and I really, really cannot emphasise this enough. You don't have to agree with the person who gets in there in the end to write a letter for them. They are not going to know whether you voted for them or not although feel free to tell them how you feel um but do write to them because once they're in they're there to work for you
0: yeah now the next thing i wanted to talk about because this is something i think you you have talked about a lot or we've talked about it together in the past we have
1: yeah boycotting
0: yeah one suggestion to really focus minds what's going on with the cull is to organize a boycott of supermarkets that sell dairy products bought from farmers who allow the coal on their land and to buy only coal-free products. Now, I think that's an interesting suggestion. I'm just not sure how you'd set that up because you'd need to know exactly which farms were involved. Packaging would need to be labelled. What do you think? If supermarkets were taking a hit, would they demand action?
1: Yeah, I think they probably would. But I think you'd have to be very careful not to have an impact on farmers that are trying to do good in the world at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's why it would need to be very carefully labeled would isn't it?
1: Very, very, very careful. But I think if a boycott's carried out, it can be very effective.
0: My kind of worry about boycotts has always been that unless enough people are involved, they're absolutely ineffective. And this is where we've discussed it before about Malta and Cyprus, where you've done a lot of work filming illegal poaching and illegal killing of birds. In the
1: cases of Malta and Cyprus, I absolutely do not agree with boycott because I think that the people that are affected are not the people who are supporting the illegal persecution of wildlife that's happening there. At all. And They're I think,
0: yeah, and I agree on a purely practical level, there simply aren't enough birdwatchers who would be prepared to boycott Malta to make an ounce of difference to their, yeah, their I, overall tourism
1: figures. I think a boycott, you can get enough people together to affect their tourism figures. It doesn't just have to be bird watchers that don't go there. Any holidaymaker could not go, but that's affecting a wider tourism in- industry.
0: Do you think you could affect ordinary holidaymakers? I don't think enough people are interested or even know about it to make a suggesting a boycott. That's the
1: challenge, isn't it? It's trying to get people interested. mm. It's trying to get people on side and it's trying to help people understand the wider issues. But anyway, let's get back to campaigning here. And one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is just avoiding dairy altogether as a protest, going dairy-free, whether temporarily or permanent. This is something that you're very passionate about, isn't it, Charlie?
0: Yeah, well, I've always said... Not always said. I have said since I went to a Badger Trust AGM a few years ago, the fact is we don't need dairy. There are really good alternatives to dairy. So one way you could voice your opposition to what's going on with this is a dairy industry thing that is driving this call is just do not buy dairy. That's kind of like the boycott of the supermarkets, isn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's kind of a but different But it's much boy- wider than just not buying from specific supermarkets. It's not buying the product at all. The dairy industry itself is very concerned about this. So you can take a personal action like that, a personal boycott.
1: You can. And something that you can do relatively easily nowadays is take part in an e-petition. We're both huge fans of what Wild Justice are doing. But there is a slight misunderstanding about e-petitions and this glorious 100,000 signature mark. Yeah,
0: because everybody talks about if you get 100,000 signatures on an e-petition, there's going to be a discussion in Parliament. But that's not actually true because the actual words are on the government website, if a petition gets 100,000 signatures, it will be considered for debate in Parliament.
1: But I think it's all about raising profile of an issue, isn't it? And getting yeah. the, the issues talked about and getting it into the bigger mainstream, which brings me neatly onto marches.
0: Yeah, where do you stand on marches?
1: Well, I think that they're great, again, for raising the profile of an issue and for getting people out there to stand up for what they believe in. I think there's nothing wrong with making a stand and showing what you really, really feel.
0: No, no, I agree that, but I, I just had the feeling the last few marches I've been on, it's been the same people over and over and over again. I'm not sure there's evidence that those marches are reaching new people.
1: Well, that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, everybody wants to go on a march in order to make headline news, but I think you're going to have to be much more ambitious in terms of the way that you carry out those marches if you want to make headline news now, because there are just so many marches that take place. But traditionally, they were there to get press, to get attention, and to raise the issue higher, and to get people to stand up for what they believe in. And okay, so you have the same people going on those marches, but if every time you go on a march, you bring two friends, and then every time those people go on a march, they bring two friends, maybe one of those two friends will continue to come and so on and so forth. And that population of people who really support that issue will grow. Don't give up. Don't give up. Stand (laughs) up for what you believe in. March. March.
0: Standing up for you believe in. What about direct action? We're always told we mustn't break the law. The laws always favored property owners and the wealthy.
1: This is a really tricky one for me because if you're fighting wildlife crime, you're fighting a crime and I don't think you can tackle crime with crime. I think you're, you're kind of almost undermining yourself. I think you've got to be really careful.
0: But if the law has been changed so that everything you do is a crime,
1: that becomes very difficult. Then you can't protest. That's where you have to go on marches and
0: So what if marches were made illegal?
1: This is a really tricky one, isn't it? It is tricky. Really a really tricky, tricky one. It's I mean, a hugely tricky you one. You know, the,
0: the, the big one in in our kind of movement that's always mentioned is, is the mass trespass of Kinder Scout. Yes. You know, yeah. the act of trespass by, by ramblers um, a Kinder Scout in the Peak District. I mean, that was back in 1932. And that was to highlight the fact that walkers in England and, and Wales were being denied access to areas of open country, which were mostly um, owned by grass moor owners um and when they went on that war they were met by a, a gang of keepers i mean gamekeepers <laughs> armed with sticks
1: wow
0: um who wanted to get them off the land and these people said no, we should be allowed to go on the land that was direct action that mm-hmm. technically they technically i think law. it broke the law but could we do that kind of thing now
1: Well, actually, do you know what? Yes, we can. Because if you look at Extinction Rebellion and what they're doing, loads of people got arrested for obstruction and technically breaking the law, although they were actually peacefully protesting. And I think you have to look at what's ethically and morally right. There we go. What's ethically and morally right?
0: Now, I agree with you, but one person's ethics are not the same as the next person's ethics. One person might say, no, you are ethically wrong to halt... Industry, business, commerce.
1: Oh my goodness, we're opening a massive can of worms. We are. But well, we have to do that. I think it's important. true. We have to talk I mean, about it's these funny, things.
0: Funny, um, I forgot to mention this. You, you mentioned about committing a crime to stop a crime. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Superintendent Nick Lyle recently. Um, he's heading up Operation Owl and he's the new chair of the Rat to Persecution Priority Delivery Group. Yes. And we were chatting about removing traps on grouse moors, you know, the snares and the traps. At the moment, those traps and snares are legal. And he said there is very little resource available to wildlife crime officers in terms of times and funding. And that investigating the illegal damaging of legal traps took officers away from investigating the crimes that we all want investigating, like raptor persecution. I mean, Does that seem a fair point?
1: It definitely does seem a fair point. I think we have to be mindful of that and particularly when we're doing demonstrations and things, we have to take these things into consideration. But I think also that maybe if you've got a limited, if you've got a limited amount of resources, maybe you should be considering where your priorities lie.
0: And why is there so little funding available for wildlife crime officers? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that 3.5% effect. Um, And this has become really well known. And it's taken from research by Erica Chimnoworth. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right and apologies for that, but she's a political scientist at Harvard University. And her research confirms that civil disobedience is not only the moral choice, it's also the most powerful way of shaping world politics. Looking at hundreds of campaigns over the last century, Chenoweth found that non-violent campaigns are twice as likely to achieve their goals as violent campaigns, because you can recruit Many more people, um, participants from a much broader grouping, if you say you're not going to be violent. But she also showed that it takes around 3.5% of the population actively participating in the protests to ensure serious political change.
1: Actually, although it doesn't sound like a high number, it's a huge amount. It's a massive
0: number of people, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it really is. And of course, that's not always easy.
0: No, no. It's not easy, and I don't think badgers... I mean, we're talking about why is the badger cult still going on here?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Um, can we get serious change? We couldn't get 3.5% of the population out on the streets of this. Maybe it's too, it's too narrow a focus. You could maybe if you were doing...
1: A, a war, war on world wildlife. Life.
0: <laughs> if that's too narrow a focus, what about something that matters to us all?
1: Well, that brings us neatly to the climate change strikes that have just happened, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, that's so. our future...
1: And I think the girl behind that, Greta Thunberg, really is...
0: She's incredible. Yeah. Really hard to describe what it is about her, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. She's like, yeah a, pheno- a phenomenon.
0: She is a phenomenon. I was trying to think of what it is. I think it's a mixture of fragility and vulnerability tied with an unshakable conviction.
1: Well, she's right.
0: That's another point. She's absolutely right.
1: The thing is, what she's saying is based entirely in fact yeah and you can't you can't argue with the facts
0: no, and there's something about her voice the way she presents things um, and you might say, why are we wandering off into climate strikes and talking about Greta Thunberg? I think it's really important, and we're saying this before in in these podcasts we're not all Greta Thunberg, we're not all David Attenborough <laughs> we're not all you know Gandhi or Martin Luther King. But well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we're not effective.
1: No, exactly. If we all come together, if we all unify and we're all part of a team, yeah. we can stand up and make a difference. Nobody is too small to make a difference. No.
0: And we can't all be leaders. No. We're not all designed to be leaders. No.
1: There's a great saying that I absolutely love, and that is Have you ever tried going to bed with a mosquito? <laughs> yes. Because if you have, you'll know that you're never too small to make a difference.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I just mm-hmm. want to stress that just because you're not Greta Thunberg, just no. because you're not David Attenborough, doesn't mean you can't make
1: a no. difference. And I've said this before. I'll probably say it in every single podcast, I'll probably say it every time I go down the pub, I don't care. Everybody in this world, you, me, everybody has one thing that they care about more than anything else in the world. And if everybody took that one thing that they care about most and did one thing to make a difference towards that cause, the world would be an infinitely better place.
0: We care about a lot of things, but we strongly care about the war on wildlife.
1: That's we should be sure sitting do. around
0: here <laughs> yes. talking about it. Yes. Um mm. on that, on that, um, it's time for a, a second um we're on Wildlife Short. And I recorded this at that same Gwent Levels event um, that Julian Branscombe was talking at. And this is Ian Rapel, He's the current chief executive of um, Gwent Wildlife Trust. And uh, he was, again, talking about the long, long campaign that he and many others fought over many, many years to try and stop the M4 extension being built across their marsh. And I just think this is fantastic.
3: Well, just before... Giving some advice. I'll make a very brief commentary on the concept of war on wildlife, which I think is a very good one, because that's certainly how it feels. But if anything, it it might even be a little bit weak, which sounds a bit mad, but a war suggests you know the clash of belligerents. And actually what we're seeing is is a very one-sided war on wildlife. It's more more akin to a massacre if you you know, at at a geological scale. But it is a really useful way of putting it because what it does above all else is recognise how serious the situation is. And it is serious. I mean, my my daughter's only three. If she lives through the same levels of degradation I've lived through in my adult life, which is only, you know, coming up to 50 years now, that would be 80% of of the wildlife on the planet gone. Not, Not, you know, 40, 30 as we've seen. So it's a very important concept. What I would say... Fundamentally is that if people want to campaign for meaningful wildlife conservation, probably the most important thing they need to do is join forces right the way across the environmental spectrum so that um, wildlife conservation is not seen as something that's a specialist technical area and is not picked off by you know, developers coming up with lousy things like biodiversity offsetting or, or you know, really bad arguments about financialization of nature through natural capital and all those sorts of things. The most important thing to recognise, I suspect, is that that standing up for wildlife is in essence standing up for the intrinsic value of that. And if you're going to do that in a broader campaign, it means looking at all the other issues that that sit aside it. Climate change now is over everything, so you should be working with people who are working on climate change in any form, whether that's sustainable transport, if you're campaigning against the road, or whether it's sustainable housing, if you're looking at housing development and so on and so on. It just cascades out like that unity is strength Unity is strength and you should bring your you know your wildlife knowledge to the table Share it with people and and build into bigger campaigns and that way you'll have the kind of success that we've seen with the M4 One opportunity that's coming up to intervene in that sort of generalized struggle is is To go along to the children's strikes the school strikes The school children have shown themselves to be some of the most courageous people on the planet at the moment for someone of my generation It's not just inspiring, it's it's breathtaking. Because the mythology is these kids are just sitting around on their social media, not doing anything. That is just a total social fabrication. These children care passionately and they're pouring onto the streets. We should and we must join with them. And they have asked very explicitly on the 20th September, the school children strike, for adults to join them. That's amazing. So let's do it.
1: Unity is strength.
3: Yeah, and that was recorded before the climate
0: strikes, of course, but there's so much good advice there, isn't there?
1: Totally. Every campaign, every action matters. We might not have stopped the badger call yet, but every voice speaking out, every complaint, every bit of information brings us nearer to that end goal.
0: Yeah. Can we achieve what we want? Not always, not in every case. But it is true, we achieve nothing by doing nothing. And I'm convinced even just talking about these things can make a difference. That's what we're (laughs) hoping with these, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah, it's about getting the discussion going and it's about making more people aware of these issues. So, episode three.
0: That was tough.
1: It really was. That
0: was a tough, lots of information to gather, feelings running high.
1: Yeah, Uh, and um, I'm going to repeat what we said at the end of the first episode we did. Feelings should run high about these issues. Our wildlife is already under immense pressure. To add to the burdens they face, like this ridiculous coal, should make us angry. And it should make us want to do something. It should motivate us. It should. Yes.
0: For anybody who wants to go on and do something else. uh, The War on Wildlife podcast is available on iTunes, of course. Um, And as I said before, we have a number of podcasts with experts on this badger slaughter on lush player and you can find those links by going to our, ta-da, our website and you can look up waronwildlife.co.uk forward slash BadgerCol.
1: Fantastic. And you can find out more about the Badger Trust and all the work that they're doing at badgertrust.org.uk.
0: Derbyshire Wildlife Trust, um, who are really spearheading the vaccination programme. I think they've got a lot of information on their site at derbyshirewildlifetrust.org.uk.
1: And Gwent Wildlife Trust is available at gwentwildlife.org.
0: Well, thank you very much um, to Julian Branscombe and Ian Rapel of Gwent Wildlife Trust. Thanks for listening. Please do follow us on Twitter at War on Wildlife. And please, please share your thoughts on what we're doing here.
1: Next episode, we'll be looking at trophy hunting and the lion bone industry.
0: Yeah, we will. We'll see you then. Cheers for now. The War on Wildlife podcast is presented by Ruth Peasey and Charlie Moores and is part of the War on Wildlife project from LUSH. We'd like to thank Julian Branscombe and Ian Rapel for the War on Wildlife shorts we used in this episode. For more information, links and suggestions to help tackle the War on Wildlife, please go to waronwildlife.co.uk and follow us on Twitter at War on Wildlife. Other episodes in this series are available on LUSH Player at player.lush.com or on iTunes. And if you take nothing else from this podcast, please remember that unity is strength
1: and to never give up.